In 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 30, or 58. I start this morning just by noting that history is filled with many great mysteries. Um, one very well-known, common one, is the, the mystery of Stonehenge. Famous circle of giant rocks in southwest England. Each stone weighs about 50,000 pounds. It is believed that they were carried from a location approximately 200 miles away before inventions like horse-drawn carriage. So the mystery is, how did those rocks get there? How did they set them up? What purpose were they for? Theory is maybe a religious purpose, but, but these are things nobody knows. They're just there. Um, there are other mysteries of things that aren't there. So, for example, Amelia Earhart, and the pilot, the aviator, who dreamed to be the first woman to fly around the world. Her plane disappeared over the Pacific in July of 1937, and nobody knows what happened to her plane. We assume it crashed, but the wreckage was never found, and the middle of the Great Depression, $4 million was spent on finding the crash, finding the wreckage, and none was ever found. She was declared dead 18 months after she disappeared in January of 1939. There are many other mysteries. Who shot JFK? Who was D.B. Cooper? What happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Why would anyone run on Thanksgiving morning? These are mysteries <laughs> that have no explanation, unsolved. We also have a, a great future mystery. What will death be like? And what will our resurrection bodies be like? For those of us who are Christians who believe, and I would say no, we will be resurrected in the end, what will that look like? What will our bodies be like? We know certain things about death as Christians. We have some certainty. We know that Scripture says that all who believe in Jesus will depart and be with the Lord, that on death we will be with him in his presence. We know that in some way we will stand before God in judgment. We know that in Christ we will be forgiven of all sins. We know we will be granted entrance into the eternal kingdom of God. We know that our bodies will be resurrected. We know some things, but there are a lot of questions that remain. And the one we'll deal with this morning is, what will our resurrection bodies be like? I want to give a warning here. We're not going to answer all the questions because some things remain a mystery. There are still some unknowns in this. But in this passage, Paul gives us enough information to, to have confidence in something. And he gives us enough information, I believe, to be sufficient for our faith and sufficient for great hope in the resurrection. He, he deals with this topic because of an objection that some people had. It was presented in the form of a question, but it wasn't a question asked in good faith. It was a question that was actually an objection. Some people ask, he said in verse 35, someone will ask, how were the dead raised? With what kind of bodies did they come? And that question is not asked in sincerity. That question is asked in, how could this resurrection be possible? After all, what kind of body will you have? Will we have? The person asking that question is not looking for an honest answer. They are thinking they've got Paul stumped. Paul, you've been talking about the resurrection, and there are some in Corinth who didn't believe in the bodily resurrection, and part of the reason they didn't believe in it because they didn't think it was possible that our dead bodies could be then raised to life. What about those who have been deteriorating? The bodies have become 
dirt, those who have been burned, those who have been disfigured, those who have been dismembered. How can those bodies be part of the resurrection, Paul? That's the question. What kind of bodies will we have in heaven, seeing as how our bodies on earth have been so corrupted and destroyed, especially after death? So Paul's going to respond, and he's going to give us some answers as, as to what our resurrection bodies will be like. He'll give three answers in these verses that I'll cover, three general answers of what our resurrection bodies will be like. And the first answer is found in verses 35 to 41. And we read that now. What will our resurrection bodies be like? Here's the first answer in verses 35 through 41. Paul says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly body is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon. And another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. In all these verses, Paul points out that there are all sorts of kinds of different bodies given by God. And they are distinct and different. And his point is that our resurrection bodies will be unlike our earthly bodies. They'll be unlike our earthly bodies. God in all sovereignty, he has the power to bring life from death. He has the power to change things from what was to what will be. And he has the power to give a different kind of body, just like there are all sorts of different kind of bodies on earth. So our heavenly body will be different from our earthly body. There will be a distinction, a contrast between our earthly bodies and our heavenly body. So some would say, how could a decomposed body, a dismembered body, how could that be raised to life? And Paul's saying, you fool. God has the ability to take what is destroyed and raise it. In fact, death is not an obstacle to resurrection. Death is the means of resurrection. That's what resurrection is. It's raising from the dead. So he takes the analogy of a seed. Consider a seed, how it dies to become a plant, so to speak. One of the great examples of this, an acorn and an oak tree. It'll never stop amazing me that an oak tree comes from an acorn. If you were to see those two things individually and you say, are these things related? You'd say, no. Those are two totally different things. The average oak tree is 50 to 70 feet high, some well over 100 feet. The average acorn is 1 to 6 centimeters long. Those things are totally different from one another. And yet... God has made one from the other. A seed has to die first, and then it becomes an incredible plant or tree. Death is not an obstacle. It's the means, it's the pathway through which the new comes. And it's not that hard for God to do this, to make an oak tree out of an acorn. 
After all, he's the one who turned water into wine. He's the one who created everything out of nothing in the first place. He can raise a dead body. He spoke that body into existence to begin with. It's obvious Paul has the creation account in his mind because look at the examples he uses in this passage. First, he talks about seeds and plants. Then he talks about human bodies, which have different bodies than fish, birds, animals. And then he moves on to sun, moon, and stars, all which have different kinds of bodies and different characteristics and glory in and of themselves. He's recalling Genesis 1 in the creation account, all that God created in the first days. He's saying, God is able to do that. He is able to create different kinds of things. And in fact, all of creation speaks to God's infinite creative capacity. And as we discover more and more kinds of bodies in creation, we understand more and more that our God is an infinitely creative God who can create all sorts of things from nothing, and he can create all sorts of life from death. That's who he is. And one of the things I find amazing is that we keep discovering new things that we never knew about. So I googled, like, how many new species are found each year? And according to Google, in its infinite knowledge and wisdom, and the irrefutable facts, according to Google search, a new species of animal or plant Well, this is what it says. All told, scientists have described almost two million plant and animal species. So in all of our years of study and observation, we have defined or described almost two million plant and animal species. And the current rate is about 18,000 new ones a year. Every year, we discover 18,000 new plant or animal species. And some of that is recategorization or refining our understanding, but on average, 18,000 new ones a year. This quote says, but that's not nearly fast enough. A study conservatively estimates that there are 8.75 million species on Earth, the vast majority unknown to science. So that's just talking about kinds of plants and animals on the Earth. We have a long way to go to figuring out what all actually is on this earth. What has God put here? And then we can go further down microscopically, or we can go further out into space, and we keep finding new things, and every new kind of body we find is a reaffirmation that our God is a creative God, infinitely creative. So when you say, well, how can we possibly resurrect things? Paul would say, you fool. God is in the business of creating different kinds of bodies. It's what he does. And just as all these kinds of bodies have their own unique glory, their own distinct properties and characteristics, our heavenly bodies will be unlike our earthly bodies. Now, that doesn't tell us everything, does it? We still have all sorts of questions. Okay, so we know our heavenly body will be different from our earthly body. How? Here's a question I have that I don't think Scripture answers. Maybe you've got an answer for me. What age will our heavenly bodies be? Like, what will our appearance... Is it our age upon death? 
Is it our prime age? If it's our prime age, what is that? might be different for each person. So, do we continue to grow bodily in heaven? Will we have, like, superpowers in heaven, like X-Men? Like, will we be able to see through walls or fly or shapeshift? What kind of properties, physical characteristics will we have? How recognizable will we be? Will my hair come back? These are questions that we have about our heavenly bodies that we just don't really have a specific answer to in Scripture. What about reproductive organs? Jesus tells us there's neither marriage, or male nor female, or there's not marriage in heaven. But what exactly will male and female look like in heaven? These are questions that I don't think Scripture has a distinct answer for us. So there's a lot of unknown. How will what we currently are be expressed then? We don't have a lot of answers, but we have sufficient answers. And Paul begins to give them in the next set of verses, verses 42 through 49. Because what we find is that our heavenly bodies will be like Christ's heavenly body. Our bodies will be unlike our earthly body in some way, and they will be like Christ's heavenly body. In verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul's whole point here, what will our resurrected bodies be like? They will be like Christ's heavenly body. We were born into the image of Adam, the man of dust. We will be reborn into the image of Christ. Just as an acorn is raised to an oak tree, our bodies will be raised, going from perishable to imperishable, from dishonor to glory, from weakness to power, from natural to spiritual. All of that meaning we will be raised in a spiritual, perfected sense. When Paul contrasts natural and spiritual, he's not contrasting physical, and immaterial. Does that make sense? So we're not to think that in the resurrection we won't have any physical part of us. That's not what he means by spiritual. In the New Testament, when natural is contrasted to spiritual, what is being contrasted is fallen and corrupted and sinful to perfected and heavenly and spiritual. That's the contrast. So think of what Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14. Paul says this. Listen to the language he uses. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, 
interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually disturbed. So do you see the contrast there, the difference between natural and spiritual? The natural person is the person who is not in the Spirit. It's not a difference of physical and non-physical, or matter and ghost. It's a difference of sinful, fallen, and corrupted, and raised in the power of the Spirit and perfected. So when Paul makes this contrast, he's not saying, in the resurrection we won't have bodies anymore. He's saying that in the resurrection, our bodies will be resurrected and take on a perfectly spiritual element. We'll be raised in the perfect power of the Spirit of God. We will be like Christ. We were like Adam, having his nature. And Genesis 2.7 tells us that God breathed his spirit into Adam who was made from the dust of the earth. And all of us, similarly, are made from the earth, earthly we will be raised according to the nature of the man of heaven. Augustine once said, The Lord who was heavenly became earthly, that he might make heavenly those who were earthly. And as we are raised, we will take on the image of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? It means, I think, we can look to the resurrected Jesus and say, Oh, that's our best picture of what our resurrected bodies will be like. We'll be raised in his image. So as we look at the resurrected Jesus Christ, I think that's the clearest glimpse we have in Scripture of what our resurrection bodies will be like. And what can we learn from the resurrected Jesus Christ if we're going to be made, resurrected in his image? We'll notice, as we look through, that Jesus at times is recognizable and unrecognizable. There's continuity, and yet something has changed. So you think of in one instance where a couple of disciples were walking along the road and they don't notice who Jesus is. They don't recognize him at first. I think that's because he was raised in glory and their minds were blind and they couldn't see it. There was something distinct and different and new about Jesus. And yet, once they saw him, they realized, oh, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't think we'll be resurrected in heaven and be unrecognizable or lose everything about us. So I think we'll still be male and female in some way. What exactly that looks like, I don't know. But we'll still be us. I'll still be me. You, you should be able to see me and know me. We should be able to see our deceased loved ones who have died in Christ and know that is them. They look different, they look raised, they look glorified, but there's a recognizable element to them. I know them. Because I think that's what we see in Jesus Christ. He's at times unrecognizable, but they know who he is. And he's physical and spiritual. He can be touched. He can eat. Will we need food in heaven? I think so. I hope so. Maybe not need, but enjoy. But there's also something almost transcendently spiritual about him, where he seems to almost kind of transcend creation in some ways, appearing, being raised. So that gives us some clue, I think, somehow, to what our resurrected bodies will be like. They'll transcend somehow this earth and be fit for a different place, a different realm. And as we see, when Paul sees Jesus, he is remarkable and glorious, and so we will be. 
It is good news for those of us with failing bodies. And that's all of us, to some extent or another. That one day, we will no longer be like our corruptible father, Adam, but will be raised like Jesus Christ, who lives eternal. And some of us carry scars with us that will never leave this side of heaven. Some of those scars are very physical. Some of those scars are emotional that take physical toll. Uh, There's a a book out, a psychology book, called The, The Body Keeps the Score. You may have heard of it. But the book deals with how psychological and emotional trauma tends to be reflected in our bodies. It's just capitalizing on what we know true <laughs> scripture, that we are body and soul tied together, and those things impact one another. And what we experience emotionally has an effect on us physically. And we probably don't even know what all we carry with us day to day and for the rest of our lives. Some of us are very cognizant of the physical pain we carry and will carry. The good news is that one day you will be raised in Jesus Christ and you will carry his image, no longer carrying the image of the man of dust, but raised in the image of the man of heaven. Eternal life belonging to you. There's a couple of movies out this season, just kind of funnily enough, that both have to do with underwater civilizations. I'm talking about, of course, the sequels to Black Panther and Avatar. Two movies that both largely feature people who live under the sea. Right? Both in Black Panther and in Avatar deal with underwater civilizations that live under the ocean. And in both those movies, if we were to go there, we would have to have a different kind of body. In fact, those who live under the ocean have different kinds of bodies. Why? Well, our body couldn't survive there, could it? What would we need to survive under the ocean? We'd need some way to breathe underwater gills? I don't know. We'd have to have some way of moving around, of seeing underwater deep under the ocean. We'd have to have bodies that could withstand the pressure of being that deep. This is a stupid illustration, but go with me. If we were to live under the ocean, we would need to be changed because it's a totally different kind of environment there, and we're not fit for living in it. Let me say it a different way. There are some restaurants I couldn't go to dressed like this. There are some restaurants so fancy, I would need a different kind of attire. And if I walked in uh, with my hoodie and jeans, they would say, sir, and they'd say it respectfully but with a hint of condescension, you can't dress like that here. We have a clip-on tie and a jacket we can put on you, right? because it's that kind of establishment. For you to enter here, you need to have a different kind of attire. So it is with heaven. In order to live under the sea, you need a different kind of body. In order to go to some restaurants, you need a different kind of attire. In order to live in heaven, in the perfect kingdom of God, we need different kind of bodies. Ours are not fit for living there. Uh, We don't have the proper equipment in our earthly bodies. We need to be changed 
in order to live there. If heaven is a place of perfection and eternal life and no corruption and no death, then we have to be changed. Either heaven has to change or we do. And I don't think we want heaven to change. So we need to be changed. And that's exactly what Paul gets to in the last set of verses here. And I think this is the key. If there's anything that marks out and defines our resurrection bodies, this is it. That we will be changed so that our bodies are victorious over sin and death. That is the defining characteristic. That's what it means to be unlike our earthly bodies and like Christ's heavenly body, we will be victorious over sin and death in our resurrected bodies. And that is all you really need to know. Scripture has all sorts of questions that are unanswered about what our heavenly bodies will be like, but this is the key and this is the good news that in our heavenly bodies we will be victorious over sin and death. So Paul says in verses 50 to 58, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In order to be fit for the kingdom of God, which is eternal perfection and union with him, we have to be changed. And how will that happen? It will happen in a moment's notice. Praise the Lord, it won't take years of working out. We know how hard change is that way, right? This won't be like that. This won't be natural evolution. It won't be by our efforts. It'll be God's grace in a moment that changes us into our heavenly selves. And when will that happen? It'll happen, as Paul says, at the last trumpet. 1 Thessalonians 4 describes the sounding of that trumpet. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, we caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The trumpet announces the victory of Jesus Christ. It calls all who are his to him. And in that moment, as Paul says, not everyone will die, because there are some who are going to be lucky enough to be alive in that moment. They will be living on the earth. So not everybody will face death. But all will be changed. All who are in Christ, all who will have entrance into the kingdom of God, will be changed and will be changed in that moment. And in that moment, death will be defeated. We will put on immortality. As Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death. Where is your sting? 
in that moment, death will no longer hang over our heads. Are you at all scared of death? Be honest with yourself. We don't like to think about it day to day. But as I sit and contemplate my own death, I realize it's actually a pretty terrifying thing. What causes fear? It's the unknown. The unknown of what will happen, what we'll experience. And nobody knows what death is like. None of us know what it's like to pass through. For all of us, it is a giant unknown. As we said, we know some things. But we don't know experientially what that'll be like. In the same way, I watch basketball and I know what it looks like to dunk. But I've never experienced that. And I don't think I will. Death is something that we don't have experience with and it's unknown to us. So it is terrifying. And I would say the reason death is terrifying is because of sin. If there were no sin, we would have no reason to fear death. We would have no fear of negative consequences. We'd have no fear of condemnation. We'd have no fear that somehow maybe we've gotten it all wrong. If there were no sin, there'd be no death in the first place. But if there were no sin, we'd have no fear of death. The reason death is fearful and terrifying is because we know we are sinful. Paul says this, talks about the sting of death. He says, the sting of death is sin. Which is a phrase that's always, uh, not confused, but just intrigued me. Because I would think he'd say it the other way around. I would assume Paul would say, the sting of sin is death, in that here's the real problem with sin, it leads to death. And that's true. And Paul could have said it that way. But he says it the other way. The sting of death is sin. And I think what he's saying is the reason death is so problematic and so terrifying and awful is because of sin. Because our sin sets us up for condemnation upon death. On death, we come face to face with the reality of our guilt. Paul says, the power of sin is the law. What's he saying there? Is he saying that the law makes us sin? No. God's holy law reveals and proves our sin. So that as we die we come face to face with the perfection of what God requires of us and we realize 
how far we fall short. And that is the sting of death. So I'll say it this way. I'm going to take some uh, religious liberties, some license um, in how I tell this, but I want to explain what I think you might experience upon death. Again, some creative license is taken here. But maybe what you might experience, what I might experience upon death is this, that we pass from this world and we stand before the throne of God in judgment. And if you've ever stood while being examined, you know that that can be terrifying, whether it be a doctor examining you, being examined for a test, if you've ever sat before a judge who has the power to determine your life, whether you are going to be released or whether you're going to experience hell, it is a frightening thing to stand before somebody who has your life in their hands. And that experience will be multiplied infinitely because you will stand before the very throne of the creator of the universe in all of his terrifying glory and perfection you will stand before him and in that moment you will also come to realize your own inadequacy and not just inadequacy your own rebellion and sin you will realize what God's holiness requires of you that if you are to live with him and live in his kingdom forever, that you must be perfect, but you will come face to face with the life you just led. And you will come face to face with every cruel thought you've had, every wicked action, every lie you've told, every evil desire, every hateful thing done to another, all the good left undone, all the wasted time. And there may be a moment of horrifying despair as you realize you are not worthy of the God who sits before you or life with him forever. And in that moment, you may hear a voice of one who sits at the right hand of the throne who says, this one is mine. I am her shepherd. I am his shepherd. And all of that despair is gone because I have dealt with every sin and I have made them righteous and perfect. And they have put their trust in me and trust in Jesus Christ never goes unrewarded. And clothed in the absolute perfection of righteousness of Christ and being reminded of all that Christ has done through you in your life and all the goodness that has come out of you by his grace, you will be ushered into the reward for a life well lived in Jesus Christ that you didn't possibly deserve, but you were given as a gift. And in that moment, there will be no more sin, no more death, no more guilt, 
No more shame, no more despair, because all that is gone. As far as the east is from the west. The sting of death taken. And you will cry out for eternity. Thanks be to God, the Son, Jesus Christ. And there may come a day, 10,000 years into eternity, and maybe I'll look to you or you'll look to me and say, do you remember when we used to worry and all that pain and anxiety and despair, and I'll respond to you, not really. You'll say, yeah, me neither. I don't currently... have pain from the teething that happened when I was an infant? How many of you recall teething? No, that's a long-gone memory. It was real at the time, your parents will tell you. The pain was real, but now it's gone. So one day, will be all the pain the sorrow of this life, a forgotten, distant memory as we're wrapped up in the goodness and perfection of God's kingdom. And we will be eternally grateful. And I do think we'll see loved ones again. It's not directly in this passage, but I think it's worth commenting on. Part of our hope, not only in our own resurrection bodies, but in the resurrected bodies of ones we love in Christ. Gregory of Nazianzus is an early church father, theologian, once talked about seeing his dead brother, Caesareus. He wrote, I shall await the voice of the archangel, the last trumpet, the transformation of heaven, the change of earth, the freedom of the elements, the renewal of the universe. Then I shall see my brother Caesareus himself, no longer in exile, no longer being buried, but splendid, glorious, sublime. And that's how we will see one another in our resurrection bodies. And, Paul's final note, that should affect the way we live today. Our future hope should exhort us in the present. So he finishes on verse 58. This weekend, uh, there were, uh, on Twitter, all sorts of goodbyes being said because people thought Twitter was going to be shut down. So it's Y2K all over again. People, ah, this is the end. So a bunch of people on Twitter were saying, if this thing goes down, here's what I want to say. I was thinking about that. If we knew the end was coming, what would we want to say? And Paul's going to have some closing words in the next chapter, but this kind of recaps or kind of tops off his resurrection speech. So he says, here's what I want to say to you in light of all this. Some last words, a final exhortation. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 
knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Don't move from the hope you have. All sorts of things in this life will want to weigh you down, distract you, remove the hope you have in Christ. Be stubborn in your Christianity. Be stubborn in your hope. Be stubborn in the joy of the resurrection. Don't move from it. And know that all your labor is not in vain. There is no wasted minute in service to Jesus Christ. All of it has eternal consequence. All that you do in faithfulness to Jesus will lead to eternal reward. Your labor is not in vain. And those will be my words to you. Don't move on from the hope you have in Jesus Christ. Your faithfulness, your service, your endurance will not be wasted. It will not be in vain. If you are in Christ, you will be victorious over sin and death. It's a promise from the Lord who loves you and saves you. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we thank you for the hope we have in the resurrection, the promise we have in the resurrection, the certainty we have in the resurrection. We see it in Christ's resurrection. That we are in him and will be in him. That we are washed clean and will be washed clean. That we are sanctified in Jesus Christ and will be completely and finally and fully sanctified in Jesus Christ in the end. And death and sin and all that clings to us now will be a distant memory one day in your glorious kingdom that is our hope and that is your promise and we rest in that this morning and we pray Lord this week would be a week of thanksgiving knowing the hope we have in Jesus Christ may our future resurrection body and soul motivate us to faithfulness to you today, for you are a good God who gives us and will give us all good things in your Son. Amen.